Good afternoon. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm delighted to present our speaker today. Uh, it's a special delight not only because of uh, you know the, the ongoing uh, uh, life of the seminar, but also we have today uh, one of ours, uh, Jamie Weiner, who's a DFIL candidate here at uh, OSGA, uh, the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies. Um, Jamie uh, is also the editor, while writing his MPhil and DFIL, has also been able to edit two important volumes. One is Moment of Truth, tackling Israel's Israel-Palestine's toughest questions that came with all books in 2018. And uh, in 2019, anti-Semitism and the Labour Party came out with Verso. And uh, Jamie is going to talk about one of the most timely issues of uh, of today, IHRA, the politics of the definition. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Um, so the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA, well, um, I recently found out that everyone involved in the organization calls it IRA, but I've gotten too used to calling it IHRA to stop now. Um, it's an intergovernmental body whose core mandate is to promote and advance Holocaust education, research and commemoration. Its membership uh, comprises 29 European countries plus Argentina, Australia, Canada, Israel and the US. Um, its central body is the plenary, which normally meets twice a year and, and makes decisions by consensus. Uh, that's the decision making body of the IHRA. There's also a number of subsidiary working groups and committees which provide information and proposals for consideration by the plenary. And finally, a permanent office, which is like its civil service based in Berlin and disproportionately funded by Germany um, overseas administration. Uh, so in 2016, uh, the IHRA adopted a working definition of antisemitism. Uh, this has provoked heated controversies wherever it has been applied. Their definition supporters have claimed that it's just a tool to facilitate consistent data collection or that it's just a kind of symbolic commitment against antisemitism, that it poses at any rate no danger to free speech and that it has nothing to do with shielding Israel or attempting to shield Israel from criticism. Yet, again and again, in country after country, political as well as intellectual debate over the IHRA definition has tended to pit supporters of Israel on the one side against progressive Jewish groups, Palestine solidarity activists and civil liberties campaigners on the other. Is this just a coincidence? A giant misunderstanding? Well, the political history of the working definition is little known, not least because it has been obscured by a fog of mystification and secrecy. The bulk of my presentation today will seek to dispel some of that confusion, establish the relevant diplomatic record, in order to help clear the way for a debate, clearly a much needed debate, about the principles that are truly at stake. I will return at the end to some broader reflections and an invitation to discussion on what might be learnt from this story. 
Let's um, first take a look at the subject of this talk, the IHRA working definition of antisemitism. Now, if you look at this document, you'll see that it comprises basically two sections, a short two sentence passage surrounded by a box, followed by a list of 11 examples of purported anti-Semitic statements. Most of these examples make some reference to discourse about Israel. These are the rest of the examples. I displayed it on two slides just to make it easier to read. Uh, now they include such criteria as applying double standards to Israel by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation and denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Now, a key point that I want everyone listening or watching to bear in mind um, throughout this talk is that there are actually two IHRA working definitions. The first refers only to the two sentences in the box. I'll just read them out. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Now, the second IHRA working definition comprises both that text in the box and the list of 11 examples which follow it. Now those two definitions, two sentences in the box, list of examples, are very different. The first is vague to the point of vacuity. The examples, by contrast, are substantive, in effect delegitimizing as anti-Semitic a range of specific statements. Yet both are frequently referred to by the same name the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism. Now, which of these designations is correct? Is the IHRA working definition two sentences long and vague, or does it contain the 11 examples? The question might seem technical, it might seem arcane, it might seem trivial, but as a matter of fact, it's been the subject of protracted and bitter political battles. I think I disconnected. You're back on. I'm back on. Am I still sharing? Yes. Okay. Um, it's been the subject of protracted and bitter political battles, battles which influential organizations have invested significant resources in winning. One such battle, an especially high profile one, played out here in the UK in the summer of 2018. On the 17th of July 2018, the ruling body of the British Labour Party, the National Executive Committee or NEC, adopted a code of conduct for anti-Semitism. Now this code of conduct incorporated the two sentence text in the box from the IHRA document, as well as most, but not all, of the accompanying IHRA examples. Labour claimed that the party had thereby adopted the IHRA working definition, but its critics contended that the examples constituted an integral part of the definition, 
to reject or revise any of them was ipso facto to reject the definition. This in turn was labelled arrogant and presumptuous, who is the Labour Party to reject or go against or seek to unilaterally amend this international definition. The Board of Deputies and Jewish Leadership Council urged that, quote, Labour needs to accept the IHRA definition with all its examples. The Community Security Trust claimed that, quote, the definition is one document. It is not a pick and mix selection of components. To adapt it is to reject it. It is not, as many as have argued, a core paragraph with optional examples to then be selected from. And the campaign against anti-Semitism insisted that Labour, quote, cannot claim to have adopted the definition while also seeking to discard part of it. It is not negotiable as an entity. Now, at the height of this national controversy, seven UK delegates to the IHRA published a joint statement on the official IHRA website, which proclaimed, quote, any modified version of the IHRA definition that does not include all of its 11 examples is no longer the IHRA definition. Well, this backlash from which I've only just sampled was so sharp and relentless that in the end, Labour's NEC, its ruling body, capitulated and adopted all the examples. Well, what to make of this controversy? Why was the IHRA working definition elevated, in the words of Brian Klug, to the status of a sacred text? Was it because, as David Feldman has suggested, the definition acquired symbolic importance as a litmus test of opposition to anti-Semitism? Was it because, as the seven UK IHRA delegates would have it, the whole importance of this definition resided in the international consensus behind it, a consensus that would be undermined by, quote, adding or removing language to or from the definition on a case-by-case -case basis? In my view, Neither of these factors is wholly persuasive. The diplomatic history of the working definition shows that the examples at issue had long been prized by the definition's most influential promoters because they served political objectives. Whatever else the summer 2018 controversy may have been about, and I do not doubt that Feldman's symbolic factor played a role, it was also a defense of these objectives. Before zooming into the IHRA negotiations in 2016, it's worth taking a brief look at the working definition's prehistory. The definition was first circulated in 2005 by an autonomous agency of the European Union, the European Monitoring Centre on Racism and Xenophobia, or EUMC. The EUMC working definition proved controversial and by 2013 had been abandoned by the successor body to the EUMC called the Fundamental Rights Agency, the FRA. On 26th of May 2016, what were then the 31 member countries of the IHRA adopted a slight variant of the EUMC working definition, subsequently known as the IHRA working definition. Without running through all the details, there are three key points worth extracting from this diplomatic prehistory and taking with us into our assessment of the IHRA negotiations in 2016. First, 
The working definition was an initiative primarily of pro-Israel advocacy groups. So the drafting and promotion of the EUMC working definition was led by the American Jewish Committee, in particular through its officials, Kenneth Stern and Andrew Baker. From early 2014 to May 2016, Mark Weitzman of the Simon Wiesenthal Center engineered its adoption by the IHRA, while Baker sought, ultimately without success, to shepherd it through the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. Both the American Jewish Committee and the Simon Wiesenthal Center are American Jewish organizations that engage, among other things, in blanket pro-Israel advocacy. In the course of this advocacy, both these groups routinely designate as anti-Semitic criticism of or opposition to the State of Israel. The American Jewish Committee has applied the epithet to what it calls anti-Zionism, as well as to the Campaign for Boycotts, Divestment and Sanctions, or BDS, against Israel. For senior American Jewish Committee official Andrew Baker, the import of the working definition was precisely this designation. Quote, when Israel is demonized, when you equate its activities with the Nazis, when you suggest it doesn't really have a right to exist or that it's a racist endeavor, we were very clear. This is not criticism. This is a form of anti-Semitism. Now, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, for its part, ranked among the world's most egregious anti-Semitic incidents in 2018, a decision by Airbnb to delist Israeli rental properties located in illegal settlements, and a German bank's refusal to cut off a Jewish peace group. It described European Union guidelines prohibiting the funding of Israeli institutions that were established unlawfully in occupied Palestinian territory as, quote, redolent of the 1930s Nazi boycott of the Jews throughout the Reich, which was the prelude to the Holocaust. And it charged most recently the pre-trial chamber of the International Criminal Court when it found that it had territorial jurisdiction in Palestine with, quote, anti-Semitism, as the ICC allegedly sought, quote, to punish Jews for defending themselves from those committed to finish Hitler's genocidal goals. Well, the working definition in its various guises and in those hands is a vehicle for investing such designations with political, regulatory, and ultimately legal authority. Now, the second key point to take from this prehistory is, the working definition's architects and advocates attach little value to the two-sentence passage I already quoted, the so-called text in the box. This passage has been dismissed as a, quote, preamble that doesn't really say much. That's Kenneth Stern of the American Jewish Committee, who's widely credited as the lead author of the definition. So obvious, that's the Community Security Trust. Generalist and vague, that's the campaign against anti-Semitism. And even, according to Mark Weitzman of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, totally neutered and unmoored from any current reality. What they prized were the illustrative examples, whose effect was to stigmatize as anti-Semitic a broad swathe of international criticism of and hostility to Israel. The wording of these examples has frequently been used to characterize legitimate warranted criticism of or action against Israel as anti-Semitic. The criterion of applying double standards to Israel, for example, 
has been used to delegitimize everything from criticism of Israel by leading human rights organizations to the EU's decision to accurately label imports from Israel's illegal settlements. Andrew Baker of the American Jewish Committee went so far as to designate these examples the real definition. Quote, when the definition was drafted and still today, we've always said it was a comprehensive whole. There is a core paragraph, which is in a box, but essentially the definition is the examples. The working def definition, quote, is in itself a minimalist definition, a senior official at Israel's foreign ministry likewise explained. What turns it into an essential definition in our eyes is the list of examples. Our third and final key takeaway from this phase of the diplomatic record. Once the working definition was published, pro-Israel campaigners tended to misrepresent it while deploying it to stigmatize and even stifle criticism of Israel. So, whereas the EUMC had merely disseminated this document as a working draft, without itself adopting the text, pro-Israel publicists frequently inflated its status to the European or even the European Union definition of anti-Semitism. A more significant misrepresentation concerned the illustrative examples. The Jewish groups that, dra that drafted the working definition led by the American Jewish Committee, they'd initially presented to the EUMC a list of examples as straightforwardly and unequivocally anti-Semitic. Here are 11 examples of anti-Semitism. As discussed, the document's principal value for them was precisely that designation. But in a fraught meeting with EUMC officials, a critical contextual caveat was inserted. Each example could, taking into account the overall context, constitute anti-Semitism, but did not necessarily do so. This qualification was supposedly added in order to allay concerns that critics of Israel would be unfairly targeted. But the EUMC working definition provided no guidance as to what context ought to be considered qualifying. And in practice, the caveat was just ignored frequently as pro-Israel activists wielded the working definition with what the American Jewish Committee official Kenneth Stern, again, widely credited as the lead author of the definition, terms the subtlety of a mallet to suppress and delegitimize criticism of Israel. So to recap, the definition was drafted and promoted primarily by pro-Israel advocacy organizations. These groups did not value the two sentence core definition, what would become later the text in the box, but rather the list of examples because these redefined as anti-Semitic various criticisms of Israel. Finally, Pro-Israel campaigners in practice ignored any nuances or caveats in the definition as they deployed it as a bludgeon against Israel's critics. Now, all of this relates to the EUMC working definition, but how did that become the subject of this talk, the IHRA working definition? Well, misrepresentation and misuse of the EUMC definition in the manner just described led to mounting criticism. In response, the EUMC and its successor body, the Fundamental Rights Agency, publicly clarified repeatedly that the document was just a work in progress, had not been adopted by the EUMC or the EU or anyone else, had no official status and had not to their knowledge been applied in practice by any public authority within the EU. When it became clear in 2013 
that the Fundamental Rights Agency had removed the EUMC working definition from its website, American and Jewish organizations, American and European Jewish organizations, as well as the government of Israel, were highly critical and resolved to act. The Simon Wiesenthal Center warned that, quote, the absence of an accurate definition of antisemitism, which includes the vilification of Israel and falsely comparing Israel to the Nazis, will only encourage our enemies all over the world to intensify their efforts to delegitimize the Jewish state. Note, by the way, how explicit it then was, what is nowadays often denied, that the distinctive contribution of the definition was to designate as anti-Semitic the vilification and delegitimization of Israel. As we have seen, the scope of such terms as vilification and delegitimization was, for groups like the Simon Wiesenthal Center, expansive. The chairman of Israel's Knesset Committee for the Struggle Against Antisemitism urged a, quote, push for the adoption of an internationally accepted definition of antisemitism. This was reiterated at the fifth global forum for combating antisemitism convened by the government of Israel in May 2015. This meeting, held in Jerusalem, brought together a broad coalition of pro-Israel and Jewish communal organizations from multiple countries. Its action plan recommended that European institutions and governments, quote, adopt a formal definition of antisemitism that should include unambiguous reference to attacks on the legitimacy of the state of Israel and its right to exist. One of the forum's working groups advised that the EUMC working definition be reintroduced into the international arena with the aim of giving it legal status. Another working group called on the EU to appoint a special envoy on anti-Semitism, among whose tasks should be to work towards a definition of anti-Semitism. A third, co-chaired by Andrew Baker of the American Jewish Committee and Mark Weitzman of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, recommended engagement with such international bodies as the OSCE and the IHRA, among other things, to increase the use of the EUMC working definition. Now, by this point, Weizmann had already been putting these recommendations into practice. So Weizmann was not just Director of Government Affairs at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. He was also chair of the IHRA's Committee on Antisemitism and Holocaust Denial. In early 2014, just after the Fundamental Rights Agency's distancing from the working definition had been publicly revealed and caused a minor controversy, the IHRA's Anti-Semitism Committee endorsed a proposal by Weizmann that the IHRA adopt a version of the EUMC working definition. In December 2014, Weizmann met and obtained the support of Romanian ambassador Minea Constantinescu, who agreed to make the definition one of his primary goals during Romania's chairmanship of the IHRA in 2016. In January 2016, a meeting of Holocaust-related special envoys, including from the UK, and representatives of the OSCE and IHRA was convened at the Foreign Ministry of uh, the Czech Foreign Ministry. Participants included Ambassador Konstantinescu, now the incoming IHRA chair, a representative of the OSCE, probably Andrew Baker, and the new European Commission coordinator on combating anti-Semitism, Katerina von Schnurbein. As noted, the 2015 Global Forum on Combating Antisemitism had recommended the appointment of just such an EU special envoy to work on, among other things, a definition of antisemitism. Sure enough, the definition of antisemitism was on the agenda of that January 2016 meeting. 
On 5th of April 2016, IHRA Chair now Konstantinescu informed the IHRA Anti-Semitism Committee, headed by Weizmann of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, that the IHRA and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, which was then chaired by Germany, had determined to, quote, seek adoption of the EUMC working definition of anti-Semitism. He requested the experts of the Anti-Semitism Committee to help me argue this challenging case at the IHRA's upcoming Bucharest plenary and delegated to Weizmann the coordination of this effort. This push to have the EUMC working definition reintroduced into the international arena met with partial success. At the, OS at the OSCE, the efforts of Germany and Baker, they were thwarted by a Russian veto. But on the 26th of May, the IHRA plenary adopted by consensus a working definition of antisemitism. Weizmann of the Simon Wiesenthal Center was, as he put it triumphantly, its architect. Recognizing that the IHRA working definition was essentially the same text as the EUMC definition, the Louis D. Brandeis Center in the US quelled that, quote, because the IHRA has adopted it, the definition has now officially been given the international status which it was previously lacking. And as Israel's Ministry of Diaspora Affairs noted, this was a significant achievement for those Jewish and, quote, Israeli representatives, individuals and organizations who, since the Fundamental Rights Agency's removal of the EUMC definition from its website in or before 2013, had, quote, been endeavoring to restore awareness of the definition as well as its use. So I noted at the beginning of the talk that the content of the IHRA working definition has been disputed. Does it or does it not include these examples? This seemingly technical point became the object of a bitter national controversy in Britain in the, in the summer of 2018, centered on the Labour Party. In this controversy, the full spectrum of British Jewish leadership organizations, as noted, as well as government officials, came down on one side. The definition did include the list of examples, with some also suggesting that Labour's claims to the contrary were disreputable, if not outright dishonest. We've also seen already how a number of IHRA delegates weighed in publicly on the side of Labour's critics. Well, where does the truth lie? Let's first go back to the text of the EUMC working definition back in 2005. As discussed, this combined a vacuous two-sentence definition with a list of substantive examples. Now that document, it left unclear the relationship between those two elements. The text drafted by the American Jewish Committee and like-minded groups did not distinguish between the, the, the two-sentence definition and the illustrative examples which followed. But in the final EUMC draft, uh, as you can see, the working definition was rendered distinct by quotation marks and a bold italic typeface. On the other hand, the whole thing was placed under the heading working definition of antisemitism. And as a result, the examples were sometimes referenced as part of the definition and sometimes not. Fast forward now to the um, IHRA working definition negotiations in May 2016. Ahead of the IHRA's May 2016 Bucharest plenary, the IHRA Anti-Semitism Committee, headed, recall, by Mark Weizmann of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, circulated a draft working de definition and recommended that the IHRA adopt it. 
Oops. Uh, it was the e it was simply the EUMC working definition with only two modifications whose common effect was to erode any distinction between the definition and the examples. As you can see, basically the two sentence opening passage now appeared in the same typeface as the rest of the document, and it was no longer separately introduced as quote the working definition colon. Now, alleging that a surge in antisemitism had raised existential questions about the viability of continued Jewish life in Europe. The Anti-Semitism Committee, fulfilling the function that Ambassador Konstantinescu had requested of them, urged IHRA plenary delegates to unite behind the existing EUMC working definition as there simply wasn't time to negotiate a new one. Quote, it's our opinion that for the IHRA to remain a credible and relevant organisation, given the gravity of the situation and the urgent need for action, that we simply cannot take another five years or longer to develop a new definition. Now, according to a confidential internal report by an ambassador to the IHRA, who participated in that meeting, which I have on file, this haste that suddenly emerged came as something of a surprise. Sweden and Denmark proposed deferring the issue until the following plenary meeting in November. They objected to flaws in the procedure it was being rushed through, as well as to the examples added to the definition. Another another uh, delegate that I've spoken to also said uh, they basically had nothing about this definition until a few weeks before the plenary, and then all of a sudden, boom, no discussion. It was presented as this urgent uh, urgent matter that had to be rushed through. Now, in um, in an effort to reach consensus and recall that the plenary only makes decisions by consensus, the chair Konstantinescu allowed a compromise proposal to be worked on and to present it to the plenary meeting. Now, this revised text was presented to the plenary on the 26th of May. The definition, quote, had been shortened to two sentences as the examples that had perturbed Sweden and Denmark, among others, were no longer together with the definition, but rather appeared separately after the two sentence definition. I'm quoting there from the internal ambassador's report. Now, most member countries supported that new text, but some held out for more time and for the definition to be still more clearly differentiated from the examples. One, one member country wanted them in a wholly separate append appendix, for example. Um, as another plenary participant observed, this controversy was raising really heated debates that threatened to derail the whole initiative. This was the point at which the Romanian chair started applying pressure and committee heads took turns giving emotional speeches quoting here from the ambassador's report, on how important it was to immediately adopt the definition. While this was going on, an additional sentence was added to the document, emphasising that this, this definition was just for use by IHRA experts and doesn't provide recommendations or place obligations on any member state. In the end, the revised text was adopted by consensus at around 3.23pm. As noted, it subsequently became the object of great controversy in the UK, whether the Bucharest plenary of the IHRA had considered the examples part of and integral to the definition. On this critical point, the ambassador's account is unequivocal. IHRA consensus was achieved only when, quote, the original draft text was cut into two and only the first two sentence part was to be the working definition to be adopted. 
The ambassador's report being a confidential brief for internal use submitted contemporaneously with the events described by a direct participant to them must be considered highly credible. All the more so as many of its observations can be independently corroborated. But for the purposes of the talk here, let's just focus on the critical point. That in order to achieve consensus, the examples were separated from the definition. First, the fact that the examples were separated from the working definition was confirmed to me by a second head of delegation present at the Bucharest plenary. Two additional members of delegations from different countries, both present at that plenary, likewise affirmed that only the two sentence passage in the box was the working definition adopted. This separation is also evident in the text of the resolution adopted, whereas the text proposed to the plenary by the anti-Semitism committee didn't clearly distinguish between the definition and the examples, the adopted draft clearly did. It added a box surrounding the definition, separating it from the surrounding text, from which it additionally and additionally distinguished it by a bold typeface and quotation marks. In a further departure from the EUMC text, the IHRA definition was explicitly non-binding, uh, non-legally binding, while the IHRA's examples were prefaced by a caveat that their limited function was to, quote, guide IHRA in its work. Third, shortly after the Bucharest plenary, at least one member country placed on record in an email addressed to the IHRA chair, along with all IHRA heads of delegation, that it, quote, does not consider the examples as being an integral part of the definition. In, sub in a subsequent IHRA plenary meeting, another member country reiterated its reservations regarding the examples and urged that the definition be distinguished from them, quote, in all contexts. A third member country echoed and expressed those, echoed that and expressed concern about the examples, quote, implications for freedom of expression. Recall again that IHRA decisions require a consensus of the plenary. The internal IHRA record after Bucharest corroborates that from Bucharest that no such consensus existed for including the examples in the working definition and for precisely the reasons that Labour's ruling body expressed reservations about some of the examples, namely their implications for freedom of expression. Finally, only these mutually corroborating accounts are consistent with the public record in the months following the Bucharest plenary. This is most clear in the case of Germany, which is chair of the OSCE and the main lobbyist, along with Weizmann and Konstantinescu, for the working definition, was well positioned to understand its content. A June 2017 Bundestag motion proposed that the Federal Republic adopt the definition and this was quoted as just the text in the box with no mention of the examples. Then in, in September 2017, the federal government adopted by a cabinet decision what it called an extended version of the IHRA definition. Why extended? Because in addition to the text in the box, it included one sentence on Israel-related um, anti-Semitism from the EUMC definition before. The extended version did not include any of the examples. Internal correspondence, which I'm displaying here, um, between German Foreign Office, Chancellery and other government officials confirms their understanding that the definition adopted in Bucharest comprised only the short text in the box, quote, the consensus to also include the extended sentence on Israel-related anti-Semitism failed due to the resistance of Sweden, Norway, Denmark and the Netherlands. 
The ambassador whose internal report I quoted earlier later confessed to being, quote, confused by the ongoing and apparently heated debate in the UK on adopting the definition, actually rather the illustrative examples, and by the public intervention amidst this controversy of the seven UK delegates. Well, I hope this confusion should now be understandable to everyone here. Whereas the UK delegates alleged that, quote, any version of the IHRA definition that does not include all of its 11 examples is no longer the IHRA definition. And whereas that claim formed a critical point of contention amidst the national controversy surrounding the Labour Party in the summer of 2018, the documentary record unequivocally refutes it. The IHRA working definition, as adopted at Bucharest in May 2016, does not include any of the examples which were separated from the definition to achieve consensus. It might be wondered, how did it come to be that this documentary record was publicly misrepresented, including by IHRA delegates, in a joint statement on the IHRA's official website? As noted, the aspect that was misrepresented was neither trivial nor obscure, but on the contrary, had been the subject of a heated controversy that nearly derailed the whole initiative. What might account for that? Well, my answer here is necessarily more tentative and speculative than the narrative presented so far, but I think one can reasonably conclude from the available evidence that the that elements of the IHRA shifted their public position over the course of the year 2018 in the critical context of political controversies then ongoing in the UK, especially that surrounding the Labour Party. Here's what I've been able to find out about how it happened. In September 2017, the IHRA's permanent office distinguished between the definition as the text in the box and the examples that guide the IHRA in its work. That distinction faithfully reflected the decision of the IHRA plenary. That same distinction was evident in, for example, the Government of Israel's announcement in January 2017 that, quote, in addition to the IHRA definition, it had also, quote, adopted the accompanying IHRA illustrations. And as noted, it was also reflected in Germany's adoption of an extended version of the definition in September 2017, which incorporated none of the IHRA's examples. Well, in the first half of 2018, Mark Weitzman of the Simon Wiesenthal Centre and chair of the IHRA's anti-Semitism committee, he made a number of public interventions that muddied to the point of obscuring this distinction. In early 2017, the year before, the IHRA working definition had been mobilised in the UK to shut down a number of pro-Palestine events on UK campuses with the express approval of the Simon Wiesenthal Centre. Now, there was subsequently a parliamentary inquiry into freedom of speech in universities. <clears throat> One British academic concerned about the working definition's impact on this incorrectly claimed that the examples had not been adopted at all by the IHRA. Now, Weizmann and Konstantinescu, the chair of the IHRA and the chair of the anti-Semitism committee of the IHRA at the time of the definition's adoption, at the request of some Jewish activists in the UK, issued the following mystifying clarification. We can confirm that the defi definition itself, as stated in the text of the adopted definition, is part of the entire document 
including examples that was officially adopted as one piece by the plenary. Now, it's really not difficult to state plainly, as the Government of Israel did in January 2017 and the IHRA's Permanent Office did in September 2017, that the IHRA adopted the text in the box as the definition alongside a list of examples to guide its work. If Weizmann instead resorted to such convoluted circumlocutions as the definition itself is part of the entire document, including examples that was adopted as one piece. Well, this was manifestly in order to convey the false impression that the definition included the examples. By March 2018, he was explicitly claiming that in May 2016, the Bucharest, at the Bucharest plenary, the IHRA adopted a definition of anti-Semitism, which included a number of examples of anti-Semitism. Now, in the context of the summer 2018 Labour Party controversy, the Weizmann-Konstantinescu statement was repeatedly cited as proof positive that by declining to adopt some of the examples, Labour had thereby snubbed, arrogantly snubbed the IHRA working definition. The joint statement by Weizmann and Konstantinescu, it wasn't an official IHRA statement, obtaining which would, Weizmann explained, take more time, in the event approximately four months. The decisive shift in the IHRA's position on the working definition took place during its May 2018 general plenary meeting in Rome. It convened about one month into the public dispute in, in the UK around Labour and the IHRA working definition. Now it bears reiterating at this junction, it's the plenary that's the decision-making body of the IHRA. And an IHRA spokesman confirmed to me that, quote, there have not been any further decisions taken on the working definition by the plenary since the one in Bucharest in May 2016. This notwithstanding, Weizmann's anti-Semitism committee meeting in Rome in May 2018 independently, independently proclaimed the examples part of the full definition and declared the subject closed to further discussion. That's the text you can see uh, in the slideshow. Now, once the reader is aware of what's going on, it becomes almost an amusing pastime, at least for me, uh, to spot the rhetorical slates deployed in order to contrive the impression without explicitly stating that the IHRA's Bucharest plenary adopted the examples as part of the definition. In this case, notice the innovative construction, including with. Well, the anti-Semitism Committee's decision was not immediately made public, but it was immediately publicised by Eric Pickles, the UK's Special Envoy for Post-Holocaust Issues and the head of the UK's delegation to the IHRA. That's his tweet there. Now, that was false on two counts. Of, uh, his tweet was false on at least two counts. Firstly, it was not the IHRA, but the IHRA's Anti-Semitism Committee, which had determined the examples part of the definition. And this was not a restatement, but rather a unilateral attempt to revise and override the decision of the IHRA's plenary. In July 2018, now well into the British Labour controversy, Weizmann publicly condemned Labour's refusal to accept the IHRA definition as a clear signal of the party's refusal to deal with the reality of anti-Semitism in its ranks. The Simon Wiesenthal Centre additionally described this alleged refusal as, quote, an open invitation to anti-Semites and, quote, a slap in the face to the UK's Jewish community. Next came the public intervention already mentioned on the 7th of August 2018 by the seven UK IHRA delegates, 
which was directly prompted by, it says it, um, the public controversy surrounding the Labour Party, and it was published on the IHRA website. As noted, this statement falsely claimed that anything which doesn't include all of the 11 examples isn't the IHRA working definition. Now, Pickles, despite being head of the UK delegation to the IHRA, he didn't himself sign that statement, which is rather curious, but he did repeatedly intervene over the course of the summer 2018 controversy to criticise Labour over anti-Semitism at times on the basis of just that misrepresentation of the IHRA working definition. Now, the UK delegate statement was accompanied around the same time by the revision of the text of an article on the IHRA's website about the working definition. There's a very useful tool, it's called the Internet Archive or the Wayback Machine. You can put in a URL and it shows you a list of snapshots of that web of that web page that it's taken over time. How did it look at, you can see, how did Google's front page look in 2000, in 2001? Well, pasting in this URL, you can see that exactly around the time of the, of the UK um, delegates statement, this post was changed. Um, the revised text was, in, was introduced what, what amounted to the same false claim, quote, the working definition, including its examples, was reviewed and decided upon unanimously during the IHRA's Bucharest plenary in May 2016. According to an email I've seen from the IHRA's executive sec se secretary, that amended article was drafted as advised by the IHRA chair and the chair of the Committee on Antisemitism and Holocaust Denial. Now, both the UK delegate statement and the revised IHRA article were publicised in the IHRA's August 2018 newsletter, all while the Labour controversy is still raging. The following month, in September 2018, the Executive Secretary of the IHRA emailed colleagues, noting that, quote, the IHRA working definition has been much discussed in the UK and beyond, and pointed them to both the UK delegate statement and the revised IHRA article as, quote, guidance and background information on the matter. Now, that email, as you can see, as well as putting the debates in, in the UK as, or citing debates in the UK as context, explicitly highlighted from that revised post on the website, the key false line that the examples were reviewed and decided upon unanimously by the plenary in Bucharest. Note, incidentally, that the IHRA's new position did not just misrepresent what the Bucharest plenary had decided, it also contradicted the IHRA's own statements. Um, when Germany endorsed a modified version of the working definition, including none of the examples, the IHRA recognised and applauded publicly this, quote, endorsement of the working definition. And when the French Parliament endorsed the IHRA working definition in a form that, quote, excluded the examples, the IHRA publicly recognised this adoption. And when the Council of the European Union endorsed the IHRA working definition, the IHRA welcomed this, notwithstanding that a reference to the IHRA's illustrating examples had explicitly been deleted from an earlier draft. Contacted by this author in October 2020, the IHRA's permanent office in Berlin disavowed its statement, quoted already, in, of September 2017 which had characterised correctly the working definition as the text in the box. The IHRA's permanent office now said that this is incorrect information. 
The working definition is, in IHRA's view, the entirety of the agreed upon text. By the way, as you look at that, um, you'll doubtless by now notice the evasive formulations as the passage strains to convey without expressly stating that not the IHRA, the IHRA plenary in 2016 adopted the examples as part of the working definition. To recap then, the IHRA's shifting position on the working definition may be linked to what, what was happening in the UK in 2018 by the coincident timing, expressed references to this context by both the UK delegates and the IHRA's executive secretary, uh, and public interventions in that controversy by the most involved IHRA officials, Mark Reitzman of the Anti-Semitism Committee, Eric Pickles, head of the UK delegation. Reflecting back on his successful steering of the working definition through the IHRA and gloating over those he termed enemies of the Jewish state, i.e. Israel, Reitzman himself highlighted the definition's contribution to European legislation against the boycott movement as well as to quote Corbyn's landslide defeat. Okay, well that concludes my whistle, top, whistle stop tour through what seemed to me to be the salient aspects of the working definitions diplomatic history. I just wanted to con con uh, conclude with a few reflections on the significance of the story that was just told and uh, some provocation or invitation to discussion. So first, I think it clear that behind the seemingly hysterical uh, or baffling insistence upon this text as a sacred text, upon verbatim adoption of all the examples, there actually lies a long-standing and rational political agenda. Many organisations have worked for many years, invested a lot of resources to draft, propagate, publicise and institutionalise those examples. It's the examples that they prize, not the working definition, because those examples facilitate the stigmatising and stifling of Israel's critics. Second, I think it the whole the whole discussion, I think it's a caution against evaluating, debating, assessing particular definitions of anti-Semitism or indeed of any other contested notion in the abstract. These things don't happen by chance. They're the product of organization, resources, politics. Third, and relatedly, we should resist the tendency visible in some places to regard as illegitimate or conspiratorial even anti-Semitic, any attempts to explain anti-Semitism initiatives and or controversies in terms of coordinated political action and attempts to discern the often unstated ideas and objectives behind them. The fact is both opponents and supporters of the IHRA working definition are coordinated. They are strategic, they have political objectives, it's wholly legitimate to try and establish them and inquire into them. Actually, the whole project of a definition seems to me to be quite a depoliticizing one. To be sure, even the proponents of the working definition do not suggest that they have come up with a once and for all statement of what anti-Semitism really is, stressing, for example, as they do, that it's not intended for academic research. Still, as we have seen, advocates of the working definition have sought to present it as, non as a non-sectarian, non-ideological basis of a broad consensus. To quote again the UK delegates joint statement, quote, there is now not a Western or an Eastern definition of anti-Semitism. There is not a Jewish or non-Jewish definition, but an international definition. Well, this is both untrue and in my opinion serves to close a discussion just where one is most needed. Fourth, 
The definition, the IHRA working definition, has been misused and misrepresented in other ways as well, in my opinion, predictably so given the history just outlined. Just as the status of the EUMC working definition was inflated, as discussed before, so we now regularly encounter references to the international, or even I've seen on quite a few occasions, the universal definition of anti-Semitism. More seriously, even as the working definition was supposed supposedly intended merely as a guide to anti-Semitic incident counters, so that monitoring statistics of, of, of anti-Semitic incidents could be rendered comparable between countries and over time. And even as the, the text of the definition itself specifies that it's legally non-binding, still we find it repeatedly recommended to universities, political parties, social media platforms, and even courts as a regulatory tool. And this has repeatedly resulted, happy to talk about it in the discussion, in the suppression of speech about which the most influential advocates of the definition have been silent or even applauded. Finally, even as I hope that this presentation has demonstrated the importance of examining the specific politics and history behind any given definition, I also think that it serves as a compelling and cautionary example of the perils of all such definitions. A well-known argument against hate speech laws or any speech code that is not viewpoint neutral is that they must be either overly broad and vague or else excessively narrow and arbitrary. In both of those cases, law, such laws are vulnerable to political instrumentalization and in the former case where it's overly broad and vague to chill discussion as people just don't know what will be what will be considered as coming under its ambit. Now, I submit that both the text and history of the IHRA working definition amply reinforces those concerns. The text itself, if read literally, is so vague as to require extensive discretionary interpretation um, or interpretive discretion on the part of anyone seeking to apply it. If, on the other hand, it's read narrowly with the examples included and the contextual caveat ignored, then the list becomes arbitrary and sensorial. So I'll therefore close with the observation, which is really an invitation to discussion, that apart from the genuinely truly limited task of guiding anti-Semitic incident monitors um, to facilitate comparable data, I can see no desirable use for not just the IHRA working definition, but any formal or regulatory definition of anti-Semitism, period. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jamie, for this uh, uh, detailed and, and thought-provoking presentation. Uh, we are moving now uh, to the question and answer session where, unfortunately, we're still bound to the textual uh, version of it. So please uh, put in your questions in the uh, Q&A text and I'll read them out and uh, Jamie will answer. We already have several. First question, uh, Jamie, is from uh, Marcus who's uh, thanking you for a most thorough explanation of the actors and their actions. The question is, in your opinion, uh, did this controversy contribute to eradicating anti-Semitism or could it have had the opposite effect? And I would add to this, this is my own Yaakov's uh, addition. I was wondering, can you give us an example where uh, the definition was used to tackle a non-Israel related anti-Semitic uh, um, accusation? Um, so taking the second point, second question first, 
yes, I can't, uh, not off the top of my head, but the, the, the European um, Commission recently commissioned a handbook on best practice of the, IHR, uh, of the uh, IHRA working definition. Um, and it basically takes, I mean, the handbook is extremely misleading. For one thing, it says that the examples are part of the definition. It was committed by this organization, RIAS, based in Berlin, which is one of these German organizations that treats a broad swathe of criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. Um, uh, but it, it's organized by example, and under each example, it gives some best practice um, of how the definition has been used. Um, well, it illustrates the example with reference to a concrete concrete case um, across Europe, um, and then it also gives um, examples of best, best practice of use of the definition. Um, so you'll find there in, in there some examples of non-Israel related antisemitism um, that are held to illustrate um, these examples. Um, uh, now the first question, well, I don't know of any evidence that adoption of the IHRA definition, um, in fact, adoption of any definition has actually proven helpful in reducing or combating anti-Semitism. Um, whenever the de whenever the advocates of the definition um, make the case for it, they never provide such evidence. At the most, they will say, in general, there's a need to try and ensure that um, incident counters have some kind of common standard um, uh, with which to uh, reference. But beyond that, there's never any def uh, proof that OK, the situation was like this and then the definition was adopted and then hooray, uh, uh, anti-Semitism went down. And that's with regard to any definition, let alone the much more difficult case, which is that it's this particular definition is the one that we need. Um, and on the contrary, I, so I, I also don't have evidence to suggest that on the contrary, um, uh, attempts to impose this definition or misleading arguments about this definition um, uh, have increased anti-Semitism. But I am concerned that when you when you have organizations like the IHRA purportedly, I mean, it's its core mandate is the preservation, the protection, the safeguarding of historical truths, misrepresenting its own record uh, on the altar of apparently expediency, ideology or expediency. That can only detract from the credibility of the organisations which are the most visible ones in purportedly the fight against anti-Semitism. Thank you. Uh, another question from Spruti. Uh, Jamie, is there a working definition of anti-Semitism that you consider effective and useful as opposed to the IHRA working definition? Uh, that uh, uh, an alternative definition that uh, can or should be adopted uh, in your mind? No, I don't even know of another definition, period. Um, I mean, there's been many attempts uh, to come up with a definition of antisemitism. I mean, you could, you could write many theses on that question. Suffice it to say, after thousands of years, no one has come up with a definition of what a Jew is, let alone an agreed definition, let alone what anti-Semitism is. Um, so in the world of academia, there's no consensus, uh, 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 formal definition of anti-Semitism, nor do I sense any real 
desire for one. Now, in the realm of politics and governance, I'm not aware of another attempt to craft such a definition. I know that the recent vote at UCL, University College London, um, which was the first in the UK where a, a university that had adopted the IHRA working definition, um, its academic board then voted to revoke that adoption. But I noticed that it voted to not just revoke, but to replace it with another definition. However, we don't we don't know what that definition will look like. As I said, I'm very skeptical about um, the desirability and feasibility of this exercise on the grounds of the general well-known arguments against hate speech laws. Um, the only function of them that I can see, apart from that data counting limited function, the only function is if you want to censor speech. And I don't think you should censor speech. I think you should address speech and where people are wrong, uh, you try and show why. Thank you. Uh, we have many questions, so I I would just uh, ask you, Jamie, to go over them quickly. We'll read them by by one, but um, um, just uh, because I, you know, the, the audience is obviously very uh, engaged and interested in this question. So uh, a question from uh, Jonathan Rosenhead. Uh, what do you think? Why do you think that Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands uh, have kept so quiet about the illegitimate rewriting by officials and subordinate committees? of the hard-fought agreement in the plenary in Bucharest in 2016? All I can offer is the general observation that this there's an intense amount of political pressure around this. It's just been astonishing trying to research this. I mean, it's taken me like two, some two years to put together that diplomatic history. Why? Because no one wants to talk. There's so much secrecy surrounding it. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times where I've submitted a freedom of information request. I get things back from every plenary meeting except the 2016 one. That's too sensitive to reveal. There's just an incredible amount of of sensitivity around this, which means political pressure around it. Uh, can I just follow up on this? Uh, can you give a, a, a little bit more information of why or how did they uh, originally explain their objection to the inclusion of the definitions, these states, uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, what was for them uh, the contentious point about, about the definitions? Well, what, 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 what's clear from the documents I have is that A, they objected to the process, it was being rushed through, um, and B, they objected to the examples. Um, one can, I think, very confidently infer that it's also from subsequent um, contributions to, to kind of subsequent plenary meetings where it was made clear, for example, by by one of the member countries concerned that these examples seem to have implications, worrying implications for freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's clear that that was the nature of those objections in 2016 as well. Um, but I don't have, uh, you know, detailed minutes of uh, which um, yeah. clarify that. OK, a question of a different sort. Uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, Mark is writing. Uh, can you give an example of uh, one or two examples of uh, criticism of Israel that you would personally consider as anti-Semitic? I don't find the term anti-Semitism useful, period. I think um, when it comes to statements, that, that category of statements, which we might call factual statements, 
don't mean factually true, I mean statements which might be either true or false. Beliefs about the world. Um, the relevant question is, is it is it true or is it false? Now, if it's true, the question of is it anti-Semitic, it doesn't arise. If it's false, that's already sufficient reason to reject it. You don't need another reason to reject it. It's false. So I don't think the term anti-Semitism is useful. You don't know what people mean when they, and, and to be honest, it often usually turns out people don't know what people mean when they say that X is anti-Semitism. And then it just, what it does is, it diverts debate from a productive avenue is so is this statement true or false which at least holds out the possibility of coming to a convergence on the terrain of reason and evidence it diverts that debate to a question of should we be allowed to say this and it's just shadow boxing so i don't find the term useful or even comprehensible thank you jamie uh, a question from maurice christianbaum Again, very refreshing presentation on this topic. Uh, I wonder if you think reactions like the UCL, uh, which you mentioned early, earlier, UCL board's rejection of the definition last week, will become more common. What is next in that sense? How can uh, dialogue around anti-Semitism in Europe move away from the debate on IHRA, uh, which uh, Maurice finds often to distract? Yeah, I agree with that last, I did that last point. Um, will the UCL vote be a turning point um, for British universities? The um, It should be, and I hope that it will, the report of the working group, it's a very detailed study of um, the implications and the, the legality of trying to apply the IHRA definition in a university context, and its conclusion should generalise across the university sector, and whether, whether other universities will in fact follow. I don't know. As I say, there's a lot of pressure around this, um, including from the government, which um, threatened the funding of universities that didn't, uh, where there was anti-Semitic incidents and they hadn't adopted this definition. Now, as for Europe, um, this year, this coming year, it's going to be an important one for the progress or the fate of this definition. Um, on the, the EU is debating a digital strategy, a strategy around what to do with um, the problem of hateful content online, how to regulate it. That's one thing. And second thing, in the third quarter of this year, there's supposed to be an EU-wide action plan on anti-Semitism. Now, as you can imagine, all of the lobby groups on both sides of this question of the IHRA working definition, although one side is more well organized and, and, and resourced than the other, but they, that these are their kind of big markers that they're working towards, trying to shape. Um, and the demand by the definition supporters, their ask is to have this incorporated into both of those documents. And, you know, Germany's, Germany was recently the, 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 the president um, and um, uh, it has a lot of influence. So I don't know. Uh, a question from an anonymous uh, attendee. Uh, I know the answer to this one. Have you seen the open letter written by Rabbi Andrew Baker, uh, Deirdre Berger and uh, Michael Wine claiming that Kenston was not the main author of uh, the IHRA definition? Yes, I, I had my popcorn out. Um, when thieves fall out, the truth comes in. I'm just hoping that um, more more documents will be released. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but 
Ken Stern, he also wrote a reply, um, a rebuttal to that open letter. I mean, they really tried to reduce his role to just a go-between. Um, um, he replied, linking to an email from the time, which appears to show that he did, he did indeed take a lead drafting role uh, to be continued. Thank you. Uh, a question from uh, Adam Sutcliffe. Hi, Adam. Uh, thank you, Jamie Adam writes for this uh, really thorough and interesting talk. My question is, in essence, correction of the record make any difference? Uh, what hope is there that fair-minded scholarship and accuracy can gain traction against the uh, juggernaut that is behind the political use of the IHRA definition? I don't know. I mean, certainly orga political organization plays a huge factor, um, but you do need arguments. Um, you do need um, facts as, 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 as weapons in your arsenal. Um, I don't know whether they'll prove decisive. I hope so. And there have been victories as well as as well as defeats on this question. I mean, to be clear, like the UK was one early battle battlefield, but it's going a battleground. But it's really a global um, a global one. Uh, Latin America is currently a major target for rolling out this IHRA working definition. In Canada right now, it's a really um, it's a really hot controversy. Um, I don't know. I think truce married to effective organization can be can be effective. Thank you, Jamie. I don't see any other questions in the Q&A, so I'll take the, uh, the advantage to take to ask another question that may be the concluding one. Um, we woke up this morning to news that uh, Gavin Williamson, the Minister of Education, is now uh, proposing to build a uh, a government body to oversee free speech, to guarantee free speech, including a free speech SAR. Uh, how do you see this squaring uh, with the uh, push of the IHRA inside the uh, British universities? I don't see it squaring. I see it as a direct um, contradiction. I mean, there is an ambiguity when it comes to adopting the IHRA. It's never made clear what adopting consists of exactly is it just we're going to make it we're going to put out a statement saying we've adopted this and then it goes in the drawer or are we going to actually use it to regulate what what speech is allowed on campus i think the inevitable sort of drift of events is they first just adopt it but then it becomes a standard that they've accepted which groups who do want to have speech regulated on campus can then cite um, uh, and put administrators in a difficult uh, position. We saw that recently with the with the Ken Loach controversy here in Oxford. So, which wherein students cited the IHRA definition explicitly um, as grounds for part of their grounds for wanting his uh, invitation to be rescinded. Um, so, I think um, in practice it will be, and it has at times been used as a speech code. And at any rate, the tendency is for that to happen and the vulnerability is there for that to happen, in which case it's in just direct contradiction to um, these claims about supporting free speech on campuses, which I do think is, is, is important to support, just not in this cynical and opportunistic and selective way. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jamie, for this uh, 
fascinating talk and for the engaging uh, discussion. Uh, thank you all for attending. Let us let me just uh, remind you that uh, next week's meeting is dedicated to, re to the reconsidering early Jewish nationalist ideologies seminar, where our speaker is uh, Maya Gildin Zuckerman with the title The Pragmatism of Proto-Zionism, Tracing Jewish Nation Building Through a Cultural Sociological Framework. Uh, see you then and thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks very much.